Welcome. I'm Anna. And I'm Chanel Constance. And you're listening to Ebony Musings. This literary podcast was created to provide a safe place for Black women to discover wellness, balance, and self-care through literature. Join us in conversation as we dive deep into the importance of self-care, balancing our lives, and how literature has played a big part in our own personal healing processes. Let the journey begin. Before we get started, we wanted to warn you that this episode is explicit, and we are discussing several trigger warnings such as sexual assault, sex work, and violence. Welcome. I'm Anna. And I'm Chanel. On today's episode, we are discussing multifaceted writer, media personality, and cultural commentator Cecily Bowman's memoir slash manifesto, Bad Fat Black Girl, Notes from the Trap Feminist. Bowman was senior entertainment editor at Neon Magazine and one of the architects of Refinery29's Unbothered. She's the creator, producer, and co-host of Purse First, the podcast about female and queer rap. Some of her works has appeared in Cosmopolitan, New York Times, and other outlets. Bowman rose to the top of hip-hop journalism thanks thanks to her passion for trap music where she profiled musicians such as Meg Thee Stallion, Lizzo, and Janelle Monae, who changed the game. Bowden observed a lot of beauty, intricacy, and all-around badassery, but she discovered that mainstream feminism did not reflect any of that complexity. As a result, she coined the term trap feminism, a modern paradigm that questions how feminism interacts with contemporary hip-hop. For the contemporary world, Bad Fat Black Girl presents a flush, fresh, inclusive feminism. Bowden examines misogyny, fat phobia, and capitalism in the context of race and hip hop, weaving together her life experiences and cultural critique. So Chanel, because you are the guru of book selections, why did you select this book as part of the Alice Walker journey? Well, I selected this book because I'm always looking for a book that kind of makes black feminism more accessible to me, mm-hmm. like more for like the everyday woman like myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are some books that already did that, like Eloquent Rage by Dr. Brittany Cooper mm-hmm. um, that's already done that. And then you have um, Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. But I like this one because it talks about the women outside of the margins, the the ratchet, quote unquote, the ghetto, quote unquote, the queers, the non-conforming, mm-hmm. um, transgender girl, black girls, um, and then it also intersects um, trap music or female hip hop, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Alice and Cecily they have a lot in common. They're both um, feminist. They both love black women to the T, mm-hmm. and they both. They both created a framework that we could really utilize to kind of critique media mm-hmm. and other cultural standpoints. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, this book was actually an excellent choice. This is my third time reading this book, and I feel like I got more out of it this time than I did the first two times. I wanted to discuss the, the link between trap feminism and womanism. Womanist is a Black feminist or feminist of color 
It comes from the Black folks' expressions of mothers to female children. You're acting womanish. You're acting like a woman. Mm-hmm. Usually referring to outrageous, audacious, and courageous or willful, willful behavior. A woman is also a woman who loves other women sexually or non-sexually. Appreci- appreciates and prefers a woman's culture, woman's emotional flexibility, and sometimes love individual men sexually or non-sexually. Um, and they're committed to the survival and wholeness of entire people, male and female. And they they like to incorporate everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, now with trap feminism, so sexually doesn't really give like a like a big d- definition. It's kind of like trap feminism. She breaks down trap feminism in like different areas of the book. Mm-hmm. So I looked up trap feminism online and. I, I really like this particular definition of trap of trap feminism. Okay. And this is from an online magazine called 032C. And this article is called The Principle of Trap Feminism. And this was written by Jeffrey Martin. And I'm just going to read just a couple of things from what he says. Okay. He says, Notes from a trap feminist seems to reclaim the performance of racialized gender, often deemed inappropriate, reductive, and unproductive for the benefit and enjoyment of Black femmes, gays, and anyone who doesn't fit the body expected for the six male gates. So this book is a part personal memoir, part anti-capitalist manifesto, and part media critique. Bowden's works approaches a theoretical discourse through the accessible and nuanced lenses of trap music, mm-hmm. and she, which she uses without centering men who dominate the genre. It confronts the the violence inflicted on Black women mm-hmm. across the gender spectrum by the systems of global hegemony, capitalism, and colonialism. Mm-hmm. So basically, when you're looking at, you know, the people that she's describing, you know, mm-hmm. she says, trap feminism is for the Black girls who have walked bamboo earrings, dookie braids, baby fat, late fronts, those who work as whole scammers, calls and reps like me at daycares and at retail, mm-hmm. who sell West trainers and mink lashes on Instagram. And they just deserve all the same dignity and respect that we give Michelle Obama and Beyonce. Mm-hmm. So this is an all-inclusive Black feminism. I'm not saying that womanism with Alice Walker was not inclusive, which it is, but I think that trap feminism brings it home for the you know 21st century 2022 black girl i think it brings it home that way right i thought about that too as i was reading because i was thinking about womanism and how alice focused on women but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day the definition is still the same it's just trap feminism it's just very inclusive so that's why i thought you know what they're very much alike but a little bit different both womanism and trap feminism they feature in the center queer woman mm-hmm. in their framework mm-hmm. and you know they both love queer woman you know they're both queer alice walker and cecily Bowden are both queer and also they really talk about bali politics and colorism a lot mm-hmm. the first two chapters talked about the culture of trap and how women fit into it Mm. In chapter one, she basically talks about how fat phobia runs very rampant in society in general, Black society, white society, mm-hmm. um, but especially in the Black community and the music industry, hip-hop music industry. And she uses female hip-hop to carve out a place for herself to give her confidence and staying power to the naysayers that are into 
Eurocentric beauty ideals. So she says, white beauty norms will always find them find themselves a seat at the seat of the table, even ours, and that includes vicious fat phobia. If you're a black girl like me, you, with the misfortune of have, of being both fat and quote unquote built bad, existing outside of the aesthetic rules means that you're committed an egregious act against the social order. So she says that women who find themselves too far away from the center of beauty norms are often treated as they they've treated as they committed treason and public facing betrayal or of our refusal to conform. So basically she's saying that um, if you're not looking a certain way, you're you're kind of like put you're kind of pushed to the side. Right. You're not really regarded. And she's confronting this right away from the start. Mm-hmm. Like pointing fingers at Eurocentric beauty ideals. Like everybody doesn't have to look like you know, a mod like a white model, or you know, who's who's in who's like who's big in the modeling industry. Everybody doesn't have to look like that. We could just look like ourselves, right? And she says that female hip hop kind of gave her a voice to kind mm-hmm. to kind of push the margins against those Eurocentric beauty ideas. Um, in this, in the first chapter, she dis- explores the term "bad bitch" and what it means in society, and and also what it means to her personally. Mm-hmm. And then she also gives a personal account of growing up, and she talks about fat phobia in her life and her music. She also says it is a myth that black people are not fat phobic, which is, is a big, big myth. Yeah, because I feel like. If you gain even just a little bit of weight, my aunts are saying, you just gain a lot of weight. Yeah. How I know about fat phobia, right? I haven't spoken to my biological, this was years ago, my biological father and since I was seven years old. At the oh, time wow. I spoke to him, I think I was in my late 20s, early 30s, something like that. And um, you know the first thing he said to me? What did he say? He said, are you fat? Oh. You I haven't thought- seen your child since she was seven years old the first thing he's going to ask me if i was plus size yeah that's kind of weird yeah i was like what and she writes in the book you know there are some women that do fit the mode of having you know the perfect body and they use that to their advantage like Mm -hmm. she she talked about trina foxy brown who i love the city girls make the stallion Mm -hmm. um queen latifah and missy were more androgynous uh, Mia X Plachette thinks to be there were more of like, you know, the southern hip hop, um, girl around the way type, right. type person. But she really didn't get the representation of of herself that she really wanted to see. Right. The second chapter, she talks about the the culture of trap and how women kind of fit into it. Mm-hmm. And again, she talks about how certain black women who don't who do not meet the aesthetic, they are treated horribly, just in general. Right. Um, she says that uh, she rejects re- respectability politics, and she really talks about how there's a lot of gray area, a, a lot of gray areas, in trying to survive in the world and how to maintain civility in a society that's very capitalistic and very Mm -hmm. anti-black. Now, one of the, I guess the 
the best parts for me in this chapter mm-hmm. was when she talked about um, she was boosting at, at Nordstrom. Right. And she had a friend with her and they both got caught. And unfortunately, the the boy got off. He didn't have to go to jail, but she ended up going to jail and she said it was one of the most humiliating times in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to be strip shirts. It was really, really demoralizing. And the thing is, she was still privileged because she still had a mother and other and other people that were able that to support her. They, they supported her and they yeah. and they were able to raise bill money to get her out and get a lawyer to kind of help her out as well. Right, right. Yeah, how her friend did her was wrong. Yeah, she says a loving, resourceful family, college enrollment, housing security, and even sound mental health all made it so I could advocate for myself at key moments when she was in jail. Yeah. But a lot of people don't have that. Yeah, very so much so. It really could have been worse. But mm-hmm. then she said that she had an English class with a white girl from the North suburbs who shared a story about going to jail and she basically for shoplifting and she just took some courses and she never got convicted. Right. So it just shows the racial disparities, you know, with jail yeah. and everything. Yeah. So the next chapter is talking about, it's talking more about fat phobia, but in mm-hmm. detail. And this one is called five star bitch. So in this chapter, the, the author Cecily, elaborates more on fat phobia in society and also her confidence journey. So basically, you know, she says when you call when you're calling a black well, sorry, when you're calling a fat girl confident, she states that it's annoying, presumptuous, invasive. And it's kind of like a backhanded compliment to call a fat girl confident. Right. Because you don't know what it took her to, you don't know what it took to get to that, that confident. Point. Get to yeah. that point. Yeah. Um she said that, you know, when she was growing up, when she was in college, she was kind of really living a life of delusion, um, meaning that she was going to so many things and not really having the time or she didn't really put forth the effort to heal and be accountable and like, be accountable for what she was going through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of them, a lot of that stems from what was happening in her past in regards to her mother, who was um, a recovering addict and, move, and she was moving around. And she just never really got the chance to unpack those feelings and the memories of, you know, how that portion of her life really affected her. So to get through those hard times, you know, she tried to get good grades. She she was wearing a mask. Um, She was just really trying just to get through, get through those those tough times. Mm -hmm. She says, because all of my energies was focused outward. I wasn't tending to my spiritual, mental, or emotional state at all. I didn't feel confident. I also didn't feel insecure. I generally felt very little except a need to stay in the game. So this kind of took a turn when she took a graduate class in college. It was for for graduate students, but when she was a sophomore, she took a a graduate class. Mm -hmm. And this graduate class kind of made her look within herself and start the work of healing herself and gaining true confidence. She started meditating and really started being accountable to herself. She says that the real tea is that confidence doesn't make me a bad bitch. When you're big, you're built bad, you're queer, and you have little hurt like herself, confidence alone isn't going to get you the things that you want or take you to the places that you want to go. Standards and morals will. Confidence will keep you afloat and keep you away from self-loathing, self-harm, and other kinds of despair. And in her, 
her experience, having strong personal standards is the only way to level up. So when you when you really just in general, mm-hmm. if you just see a fat person, quote unquote fat in I guess in the society standards, and they just look good, just tell them that they look good. Don't mention anything about their confidence, because frankly, you don't know what they've been through. You don't know what they did to get to that get point, to, that to, point. Be, right. to be confident. Right. And just it's just a lazy compliment. Yeah, it's, it's like those people that will say, "Oh, you're pretty for a big girl." Like, what is that? Yeah, I can't just be pretty. I have to be a pretty big girl. Like, what? Yeah. Did your daughter ever ask about McDonald's money? My kid will say, "Like, do you, can we go to Chick Fil A when she was younger?" Granted, we could have, but I was like, "Well, we got food at home." And I would turn to her and say, "Well, do you have Chick Fil A money?" <laughs> That's funny. To have McDonald's money means that you have the the wherewithal right. or the, the funds to get McDonald's. Right. I like this chapter because she goes into detail about what making, about what having McDonald's money means. She mm-hmm. says, it's such a loaded question that not only references the literal cost of food in the United States, but also not to the inherent power dynamics between people who have money and those who don't. So if you're like a little kid you know, you don't have a job, you don't have anything. You always ask your mama for money and she has the, the money and the capital to get it. But sometimes right. she doesn't even have it. So she's like, right. so, and you're like, no, I don't have any money. She was like, well, I don't have no money either. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually how it was. And she was like, there's, there's spaghetti at home or there's food at home. Right. So she states that when she was growing up, you know, what she was taught about money was that you need it and it's the key to autonomy agency and freedom Mm -hmm. and that is all true but she really wasn't taught in general how to manage it and have good habits and you know she emphasizes that life could be pretty shitty when you're when you're broke Uh uh-huh many of us been there one too many times poverty can actually like it could kill people Mm -hmm. because you know it limits where you can go and learn. It can dictate how you look and how you're treated by other people. I'm just reading what she says. Mm-hmm. If it binds people together and it puts a strain on those relationships, it decides whether you're going to have a doctor look into those pains you've been having in your stomach or if you keep on, if you just keep self-medicating and hope for the best. But yeah. it's just not shitty and stressful. Poverty literally kills people. You have housing insecurity, lack of health lack of access to health care and decent education has consequences that are bodily and generational. People are left to sit and rot in jail when they can't afford bail or don't have housing, keeping them away from their families. Not having access to quality education makes it harder for you to escape the cycle of poverty. So, and when you can't afford life-saving surgeries or drugs or surgeries, you die. And especially if you don't have a good job that has good benefits, then you're kind of up a creek. Yeah. Poverty does, it puts people in positions where they're forced to do stuff, but then it's like in return, those who are of the higher class will look down on those people. Well, why are you, why are you a prostitute? Or why, are, you know what I mean? Like, why yeah. are you selling drugs? And Right. And especially for those who are femme, who are queer, who are non-binary, mm-hmm. um, who are have chronic illnesses, you're in your non-citizen, it could be a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're kind of speaking from a she says you're kind of speaking from 
a place of privilege if you're saying like money doesn't buy happiness because money can literally buy all the things that you need that right. you, you can survive. Yeah. The next chapter talks about hypersexualization of black girls. Mm-hmm. So she talks about how sexuality or how black girls in general, they're, they're always monitored and always surveyed unfairly. Mm-hmm. And then she also recalls about how she learned about her own sexuality and when she was first sexually active. She talks about when she um, lost her virginity. Virginity, yep, she was 12 years old. Which yeah, was very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, she talks about also how, I really like this part of the chapter when she um, talked about working at the doctor's office mm-hmm. and how it was just like a cent, like a hub yep. for community. Like mm-hmm. when people needed help needed um information about stds about pregnancies about making the right decisions about their sexuality it was there and it was also a place where if you needed something else like for example the lawyer that she needed to get her out of jail she was able you're able to find that as well right um she states that sexual that silencing the sexuality of black girls is not good at all because they will internalize the shame and not ask questions or seek out information or resources because they need it. It will empower predators to take advantage of them. Oh, this part really sticks in my head. She talked about how she lost her virginity at 12. Then she talks about when she was 14 years old, how she was dating a guy that was in his 20s yeah. and didn't realize he was grooming, grooming her. her. Yes. If he did not go to prison, who knows where she would have been right now? Right. And I really like that she sticks up for sticks up for black girls mm-hmm. because you can't just because you can't always call girls fast. Right. You don't, you don't know what they're going through. And even when you're a baby, they're like, oh, that girl looks too grown or whatever. They start when they're babies. Right. I was like, this is just a little girl wearing an outfit. Why are you sexualizing her? She also writes about how sex is very, very male centered. And women deserve to know and develop a good sexual ethic with their bodies. Um, black women especially deserve to feel good in their skin and relationships. We already know the whole story about how we didn't have access to our own bodies during slavery. We were breeders, mm-hmm. you know, raped, whatever. It was just a lot going on. Even when we were, even when we were free, we, our bodies didn't really belong to us. Belong to say, us. You know, we didn't have a lot of birth control. So it was just, it was a lot. So we, we deserve to feel good in our skin and right. to demand that in relationships. And she also states that black, that black female rappers really opened a new world for her, a new world for her sexually. We yeah. listen to Make the Stallion, Cardi mm-hmm. B, uh, Little Kim. They're very, very sexually explicit and very sexually proud as they should be. Because, yeah. you know, you should demand what you want in sex and and in a relationship in general. And I really like that they do that in these songs. So in selling it, she talks about sex work and how she got involved in it. She, um, you know, she's not really making a lot of money doing Mm -hmm. what she's doing. So she's just trying to find, you know, a way to make more money. And she's thought about, you know, maybe doing sex work. So she actually talked about her first experience and having a, having a session with a guy. She was very safe and she mm-hmm. was smart. Right. Um, a lot of people like to like down, you know, sex workers, strippers, 
prostitutes, cam girls. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's actual work. It is. It's actual work. And I think it should be decriminalized. Because the thing is, you know, they're trying to, This we live in a capitalistic society. Everybody doesn't want to log, log in onto a computer and work like that. Okay. Some people want to use what they have. And for some people, that's their actual bodies. And right. for me, there's nothing wrong with that. This is one of those things, those areas where it's a lot. I understand why people, I'm going to say people in general, because I want to be inclusive. Men do it too. Mm-hmm. Why they choose this line of work or it's not always desperation. Right. Because I think a lot of people think, well, they must be desperate or they must be in a really bad situation. So she's out there on the street selling her body. It's not always that. And then Cecily also talked about how it's not always sexual. A lot of these men that she had dealt with weren't with her for sex. They wanted conversation. Exactly. And I like what she says. So she says, my time as a sex worker allowed me to deeply interrogate many of the things I've addressed in this book so far, like body politics lawlessness, confidence, money, sexuality, and others I write about later. But there may not be a, there might not be another chapter in this book that cuts more to the core of trap feminism than this one. Because there is no group that feels the impacts of racism, sexism, classism, transphobia, fatphobia, capitalism, criminalization, and state sex, sanctioned violence more than more directly than sex workers. Yep. And it's even true for those of us who are black women and especially for black women that are trans. Mm-hmm. And she said, trap feminism is very much a project that tries to make sense of this reality while bearing witness to a cultural obsession with sex work for us to be so disgusted by and ashamed of women who get paid under the large umbrella of sex work. We damn sure can't look away. <laughs> and then she says that, you know, there's a war for there's a war phobia in sex work itself mm-hmm. so like the car girl the car girls think they're better than the prostitutes working out on the street and then some people really don't understand bdsm so it's just mm-hmm. like it's just a lot of hierarchy there right. and, she, and she's like this is all the same they're doing they're doing a literal um, emotional work right. <laughs> listening to these yeah. people she was a therapist <laughs> i sometimes gave a happy ending i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> But I really like this chapter. Um, mm. I, I really like that she spoke to the the sex worker who may who who may be working at mm-hmm. this time and and really supported them because she was a sex worker herself. Right. So one of my favorite chapters in this book was called "Not Straight," and she's talking more about her journey into queerness, and she takes homophobia to the trash. Mm-hmm. Like totally to the trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talks about living in a queer experience, watching her mother date, and having partners of the same sex. Well, she mentions that there are mostly studs. Mm-hmm. And she also talks about how she went to her first Pride event, um, and she distanced herself from her mother and her partner at first because she just didn't really know how to, I guess, act, right. act, act in that environment. Um, she ta- she also states that heterosexuality is insecure and extremely fragile, which is very, very true. Yeah, I agree with her on that. So I'm going to read a, I'm going to read a, a very important uh, 
quote. She says the real tea is that our backward allegiance to heterosexuality is actually a function of white supremacy. That rigid masculinity black six men are supposed to embody is one half of a gender binary set up to uphold the moral superiority of our colonizers. It supports an equally rigid nuclear family model that leaves little room for communal living and support of one another. Families that break off into insular units are modeled after our society of individuals who fall into different groups or classes of people, but aren't required to support other people within those groups. People are worried about the gay agenda when an imperialist agenda pushed us into straight gay slash man-women binaries that were never meant for us in our communities in the first place. And then she says, our own internalized anti-Blackness has led us to believe that Black excellence comes in the form of heterosexual marriage, kids, and wealth building. So basically she's saying that heterosexuality itself, it's not all that, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. If you're heterosexual, that's great, but there's no gay agenda that's trying to turn, you know, heterosexual people gay or pushing right. that into children. That doesn't make any sense. Right. So she she also writes about raunchy female rap in the nineties, how they were how women were playing with things of lesbianism and bisexually in their rec in their records like Queen Latifah, mm-hmm. uh Debrat, Missy Elliott, they use their own personal style and aesthetics to sidestep the constraints of the gender binary. Mm-hmm. And then we have we have uh, rappers like Dream Doll who talks about her sescapades with women. Cardi B talks about them sometimes. Yeah. Nicki Minaj. Those are, it, they're just very, very like explicit mm-hmm. when they're talking about, you know, being with women. Yeah. The next two chapters, she's really talking about dating relationships and friendships. Chapter nine is Flush These Negroes. I'm not gonna say the N-word because I don't I don't find right when I say. It. So I did not know this historical tea. So Frederick Douglass' first wife was Anna Marie Douglas, and she was a free black woman. And she really encouraged him to, to do his abolition work, his anti-slavery work, anti-racism, you know racism, all that stuff. Uh, she gave him money mm-hmm. so that, they, that, she, that she could be released from slavery. Um, he, she worked to support the family. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, she kind of died. Well, f- well, all of a sudden, there was like uh, some rumors going around that he was cheating on her. Uh huh. Because he was traveling. Uh huh. So listen, I read Douglas Frederick Douglass's memoir, and he didn't really talk about his wife very much, oh, which wow. I thought was unfortunate. She was a free black woman who gave him freedom and in return (laughs) you cheated on her and then you married a white woman. No disrespect to people in interracial relationships. This is not it. This is not that kind of thing. I'm just saying that he never, I felt like he was a dog. Okay. Yeah. This is my personal thought on Frederick Douglass when it comes to relationship. He was a dog. Yes. He was about women rights but it was like he didn't even have the the nerve to like do that you know provide for his wife in that way she couldn't read he could he never taught her how to read why wow. is that I'm, I'm curious i'm like why didn't he teach her how to read then this woman freed you dude 
she freed you and you couldn't give her that. And I felt like him holding her back like that was his way of dominating her. Yeah. Right? So now he can have these relations with these other women, these intelligent women, quote unquote, these women that can read and they're fulfilling something that I felt like his wife could have given him if mm -hmm. he had given her the chance. Now, granted, we don't know the full story of Anna or Anna, however you say her name, but it was just, I just thought it was so wrong of him to do that. Like, and it, I thought also it was like a slap in the face. This woman saved you. Right. She saved you from slavery and this is how you treat her in the end. And then with Harriet Tubman, that story, I did not know at all. I didn't know she was married. Like she was, she was married mm -hmm. and, you know, she was, she wanted to, you know, be liberated and, but, you know, her husband wasn't really supportive about it and, you know, Harriet didn't care, you know, she still, she liberated herself and many other people. I'm just curious if he ever regretted that. I don't know. It says that he even she even brought him a new suit for the journey for him to for them to be both liberated, mm -hmm. and then he just said no. He's like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy. And then here. he ended up, and he he ended up getting married to someone else. Right. He was he was content in his life at that time, and she was like, no, nah, there's something better. So I'm happy for her. And she ended up marrying a guy that was 20 years her junior. Yes. Yeah. I'm, and they, I think they were married for about a good. They're married for a while, like an eighteen. Yeah, almost twenty years, just yeah. about. And she, she, she takes black men to task because a lot of black men they they um they have a lot of toxic masculinity mm -hmm. in them, and she says that the very concept of Western masculinity is inherently toxic because it's built on the premise of domination and control. It gives six gender heterosexual men and sometimes other folks who may, who may identify with and ex perform acceptable masculinity like, uh, you know, gender nonconforming, mm -hmm. trans, gay people, queer people, ample opportunities to participate in, tax in this toxicity. And they choose to do so because it benefits them. Yep. And because she says, because toxic masculinity has been so normalized and institutionalized, showing up in everything from healthcare to justice system, the likelihood that men will face any backlash or consequences is low. And she said, this is especially true when their harmfulness is directed towards Black women. Mm -hmm. And she also writes about, in 2028, the Blackburn Center which is like an anti-violence organization based in Pennsylvania, they published a report noting that over 52% of all Black women had experienced psychological abuse and over 41% had experienced physical abuse. And the report also documented that Black women are nearly three times as likely to die at the hand of a man than white women were. And, you know, they basically said that in the overwhelming majority of these cases, 92% of the person who killed them knew their victim. I mean, they were black. It was a black yeah. man. Yeah. And 56 of these homicides were committed by a current or former intimate partner. Mm -hmm. So basically, in this, in this chapter, she really puts forth her rules for dating. And she wants people, she wants people in general or black women in general to have, have standards for yourself, have boundaries. Know what you want. 
if if you notice, black women are usually they're they're called bitter or divisive if we're talking about sexism or misogynoir and right. black communities or they're they're sharing I'm sharing or we're sharing our experiences with toxic masculinity mm -hmm. um in regards to dating or whatever. And you know, she's saying, you know, basically there's nothing that we can really do that that will cause men to change unless they want to change themselves. Right. And I and I love Beyonce and everything. She says she says, um, black women have been glassly into believing it's a version of love that requires us to first and foremost to dissenter ourselves. Our love has been equated with a form of martyrdom. It grows stronger the more we suffer and hold Negroes down, Negroes down. Somehow that's supposed to be good to, for all of us. I'm here to tell you that ain't it, sis. And then she says the narrative that Beyonce offered us in Lemonade that on the other side of the worst betrayal of your life is redemption that will mm -hmm. make it all worth it. It should not be a blueprint for relationships. Agreed. And, and then she said it was an epic, epic fantasy saga created by a woman worth nearly a half billion dollars. Mary Tuckman <laughs> worth even more. She's correct. She's yeah. like, do not fall for it. Yeah. Like, not everybody can have this story. You, right. need, to, you need to heal yourself and move forward and stop trying to heal these men too. Right, right. And she also talks about how Meg the Stallion was trying to protect Tory Lanez, you know, when she, when he shot her in the foot. Mm -hmm. She didn't even want to tell the police because she was afraid of the police, what the police might do to, to mm -hmm. him, you know, yeah. state, state sanctioned violence. So we really try to protect our men literally at all costs. We, black women for real. We, we are one of the most disrespected people on the face of this earth, especially when it comes to black men. They don't back us like we back them. She says at the end of this chapter, you are the prize and you are the priority. But yep. these Negroes, which I totally agree. Yep, agreed. So we're at the last chapter. I think that this is a really good chapter because nobody's going to really hold you down like your friends. Mm -hmm. um, I related to this a lot, you know. Um, so my best friends are, um, I have a, are good friends. I have a sister. We are about four years apart, but she's my best friend. We talk all the time. Um, you know, she, when I had a really hard, hard time with my mom dying and everything, she kind of helped me stay centered. Mm -hmm. um, we, t we just, we love Beyonce. We love rap music. Like we just talk all the time and you know even when I was when I was at my lowest she really helped me mm -hmm. and I really think with this chapter she really wanted to emphasize having good friends but also being a good friend as well right which is the most important thing it's great to have good friends but you also have to be a good friend yourself right definitely say that my sisters are my best friends so I, I really love the fact that she talked about just keeping friendships, keeping those relationships tight. And those are the women or men, whoever they are, um, they will have your back. They will support you. And sometimes you'll have a falling out, but, you know, over time you get over your shit and put it back together again, especially for those people who've been with you a really, really long time and know you like 
right. your sisters or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, she really says, she says that trapped feminism really includes those really important friendships because you're really nothing without your community. Yep. So that's, that's what I really, really liked about it. Mm. What was your overall thoughts like? I really, really liked this book. Mm-hmm. I really felt like she was checking me so much on mm-hmm. my privilege. You know, mm-hmm. me growing up in a two-parent home, um, suburbia, uh, going to the library all the time, college, all that stuff. And I used to have a lot of internalized fat phobia and hom- homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, homophobia, not anymore. I clearly do. I don't have that. But I had some internalized fat phobia that I had to check myself. Like, wait a minute now. She's right. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I used to always, oh, yeah, this girl, you look so confident. Like, you don't, but you don't know. There's a song, there's a gospel song that says, you don't know what I've gone through. You have no, you don't even know my story. Right. And that kind of checked me. I'm like, yeah, I don't really know what the, these people are going through. So I can't just say, oh, yeah, you look, you must be so confident. Just say, you look beautiful. You look gorgeous. You look glowing. Right. You know, right. say something about their personality. Or you know, they just they just may look good, and it's and because unbelievably, Pat. I mean, just I'm saying sarcastically, uh-huh. bad people can look fabulous. Well, absolutely. So I think she really checked my um my my fat phobia for sure, my classism, all that stuff, and she really made me think about just being more inclusive in my own um in my own uh I guess framework of. Mm-hmm. A black feminism, and I love, love, love that she has a love for rap music, especially female rap. So I really, really enjoyed this book because she showed um, Cecily showed me something or explained something to me that I I didn't even think was a thing: trap feminism. Yes, I, I, like how she broke it down, just kind of like, oh, okay, you know what I mean? Like it was just like eye-opening for me and then she like you said i checked myself for fat phobia because i'm I'm not saying that i'm um i'm a huge woman and i'm not really skinny but i am i'm i could say i'm plus size but i've also judged myself mm-hmm. when it comes to like oh you know just being a plus size woman right so she kind of like gave me something to think about how even how society how society judges you know, plus size people or fat people, what, how, how am I judging myself too? So I felt like she put me in check with that as well. Um, the pace was great. I, it wasn't very academic. Yes. I like that. Yeah. It was so very I, accessible. Yeah. I wasn't like, I had to go look up some stuff. I'm like, what is she talking about? Everything was modern. Everything was easy to read. Like any, I felt like the way she wrote the book is anybody who wasn't really into books but was into the the female rap music and things like that could easily pick up this book and really enjoy it. So I honestly thought it was a great book. This is also a book that I feel like I can revisit multiple times and get something different out of it every time. True. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope we have inspired you and help you find tools to make your life just a little bit easier. To continue this conversation, you can stay in touch with us on Instagram at Ebony Musings. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review. It would really help our show.
Thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.